Hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 47. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. My name is Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy to be bringing uh, the Word of God to you this morning. You can tell we're taking a little break, just one week break, from um, the book of Revelation that we've been studying for the past few months. 
and we're just going to look back over our past year and kind of listen to a little bit of our story at Sacred City. Many of you guys are, are new to us. You might not know how we got here and how we came to be. We want to share a little bit of that story, and we also want to uh, look forward uh, in hope for what God might do in 2019. And um, before we get into it today, I would, um, a couple things. One, um, this, I just will ask for prayer. This week, this Thursday, I have, uh, I've got surgery scheduled. I have knee surgery scheduled for this Thursday. And so if you could pray for me, if you think about it this week or on Thursday, I would much appreciate it. Um, I, I am not looking forward to uh, that, let's just say that, or not being able to do things that I like to do after that. So if you could pray for me, I would appreciate it. And then the second thing I want to share with you, just a little brief announcement, if you didn't know, is one of our pastors, Pastor Alex Arguello and his wife, Emily, they had um, their uh, 16th child this week. <laughs> uh, a sixth child, I guess, actually. Sixth child. They had yesterday, um, Quinn, baby boy. And so we, uh, we as they said, uh, the Lord added to their numbers uh, daily. <laughs> the Arguellos know what he's talking about. So I don't get to make fun of Alex very often. So, and he does it every time he preaches. He makes fun of me. So I figured I'd take my shot when I can. But that's about it. So we, we do welcome you this morning. Um, I'm glad you're with us. I hope you're starting your New Year's out um, with plans for your spiritual growth. And a key piece to your spiritual growth is to be here in this gathering on a weekly basis, hearing the word preached, taking the Lord's Supper, and being with God's people. So with that said, let me pray. And we're going to go ahead and jump in this morning. Father... I thank you for your grace. I thank you that every morning your mercy is brand new. And it's good. That's a good thing because we, we, we wear it out every day. We wake up in desperate need of your mercy. And so, Father, would you meet us here this morning? Would you think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords? Would you help me preach your word? Help me tell the story of this church and your faithfulness to this church accurately. And would you help us hear with faith and would the word of God produce fruit in the lives of your people? Uh, Father, would 2019 be a year where addictions are broken? Would 2019 uh, be a year where souls are saved, lives are changed, people begin to make positive decisions for their life? They reach out and um, develop relationships with other people. Father, would you do miraculous things in the lives of your people this year? We pray for this. We ask you to be here now, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a healthy practice for us each year at the beginning of the year to kind of take a brief look back over the past year to see what God has done through us so that we can rejoice in him. And then also we want to look forward and hope at what God might do so that we can kind of structure our life at the beginning of a year, we can structure our life to be um, as fruitful and as productive as we possibly can. And also, if you didn't know, this is the seven-year anniversary of our first public worship gathering as a church. So, yeah, all right. Now, we don't, you, you didn't see anything about this on Facebook, right? We don't advertise this. We don't market this. We didn't put any banner out front. Um, it's just a natural rhythm for us that seven years ago, on 
the January 1st, actually, is what it was seven years ago, uh, New Year's Day. Everybody said, don't do it. We did it anyways. We launched on a church full of young people on January 1st. It was great, actually. It was a great plan. I was like, guys, you have to be here to set up. Don't go out the night before. <laughs> don't do it, right? It's a great plan. So we launched, and I'll get into that just a little bit uh, today. And let me just share a little bit of this story. See, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I loved God as long as I can remember. I loved God. I went to church camp. I was at church pretty much any time the doors were open. But then in, in junior high, through a lot of circumstances that I won't go into detail about, my parents stopped going to church. And I began to worship the gods of girls in sports. And it wasn't until my senior year of high school that God gripped my heart and drew me back into a relationship with him and his church. My family began to attend a different church on a weekly basis. And through that, God gave me an immense hunger for himself. I started to, re to read the Bible for the first time in my life. I began to volunteer at the church in the youth department. And really, I just began to tell anyone who would listen about Jesus and what he had done for me and in my life. And to make a really long story short, over the next few years, I began to sense that God was calling me into full-time ministry. That began by a youth pastor looking at me and saying, I think you've got gifts and I think you've got some talents and, and I, think, I want you to come on staff uh, with me as a, as a director of operations for the youth ministry. That was my official first title. That kind of evolved into a junior high pastor role. And then eventually, years later, I was offered the youth pastor position at another church in the Quad Cities. I was there uh, as a youth pastor for seven years, and that's where I met many of you here in this room. And there at that youth ministry, we saw God do some pretty remarkable things. God grew this little group of seven kids. When we got to the church, there was seven kids, and half of them I think I was related to. And it grew us into one of the largest youth ministries in the Midwest. We saw hundreds of kids get baptized in one night. I can still remember. In one night, we baptized 93 teenagers. But then in 2009, I experienced the confluence of three things that brought about a great change in my life. One was I read the book, Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. And I kind of from that book, I, I kind of realized I think I might be wasting my life. <laughs> uh, this book was kind of like a gateway drug into gospel-centered reformed theology, and it really set me on fire for the glory of God. But it also began to put me at odds with the church where I was serving. Second, I discovered the Acts 29 church planting network, this group of men who were devoted to preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible and really preaching the Bible in such a way that it was true to its original intention, its, its original author, its original author's intention and its original context, but then they could culturally apply it to the needs of today. Nearly every preacher in the world says something along the lines of, we, I just want to preach the word, right? But most of the time in our culture today, preachers end up preaching their own opinions with a few Bible verses sprinkled in. 
But these Acts 29 guys, they were preaching long, exegetical sermons that were theologically rich, culturally informed, and gospel-centered. And I felt like for the first time on a Sunday morning when I was listening to them that I was sinking my teeth into a T-bone steak. It was good for my soul. And then third, because of the first two events, I was seeing some glaring weaknesses in the youth ministry that I had built and in the church that I was serving. We weren't doing a great job at making disciples. We were good, pretty good, gaining a crowd, getting people excited, kind of putting butts in the seats. It was pretty entertaining. Oh, man, it's too entertaining. You were around during those days. But I began to realize that there was a difference between attracting people and entertaining people and really forming people's souls. There was a difference. And we were good at the former and we weren't very good at the latter. So in my angst, I began to toss around the idea a 29-year-old guy, what if I planted a church? What if we planted, started a brand new church here in the Quad Cities? A church that would be serious about God, serious about making disciples, serious about preaching the Word of God and, and living out the implications of the Word of God. I shared this with my family. They were cautious, but encouraged me to go do it. Shared it with my good friend, Kevin Ryan. Kevin's here today. Kevin, it was probably his fault, got me in trouble. He said, yeah, go do it, dude. Let's do it. <laughs> then I shared it with my pastor at the time. It was encouraging. But unfortunately, a week later, he fired me. <laughs> it's kind of common. It's kind of common in the ministry, unfortunately. We have crazy things in the ministry. Other ministries that make pastors sign 50-mile non-compete clauses. You can't plant a church within 50 miles of us. Crazy stuff um, that, that churches adopt from the world. Um, well, what happened here was when I got fired, this knocked my world into a tailspin. I felt called to plant a church, but I was completely unprepared. The idea was just a few weeks old in my soul, and now I was literally just thrown out into the deep end. At this time, we had no name, we had no budget, we had no meeting place, we had no plan, we had no real vision, we had very few adults. <laughs> On top of all of that, my wife, Amanda, who is singing up here today, was pregnant with our second child, and now I had no job and no salary. What were we going to do? Man, I smile now. Sometimes God just likes to bless crazy people. That's all I can say. Because what we did next was crazy. We did, the, let me just say, we did not do the prudent thing. Six days from the moment I got fired, six days later, we launched Sacred City Church. The fact that we came up with a name in six days is a miracle. <laughs> we launched it on a Wednesday night. It was a little weird, but we launched it on a Wednesday night. 
150 people showed up. It was mostly students and college kids, but that's how Sacred City got started. But looking at things, and we were, I mean, it was just a, just a tailspin and just a whirlwind, and things were crazy, and we were just going by the, you know, just, just making decisions and making things happen, and we weren't really thinking about them too much because we didn't have time to think about them. We didn't know what else to do. But I knew in my soul that I wanted to plant a church that was different than anything I'd experienced in the past. Not a, a, a church that was, that was influenced by politics, not a sh- church that was influenced by the corporate structures of the world or entertainment. I wanted to, uh, to plant a church that was serious about the gospel. And I know I also needed training and needed development and needed accountability myself because I didn't know what I was doing. And it's hard to build something you've never seen before, right? It's really hard. It's kind of like building an airplane in the air, right? It's probably not a good plan. Well, that's what we did. So what I did in this moment, we planted the church. We started it. We started doing a weekly gathering. And then I signed up for this Acts 29 church planters assessment. It was a boot camp conference down in Louisville. My wife and I, we had to fill out all kind of paperwork, all kind of application stuff, all kind of theological background. Just took a lot of time. We, and we went down there for this assessment. And in this assessment, three godly men, they were, they were seasoned church planners from around the Midwest. They were biblically qualified, just biblically saturated men. And they sat around a table for us for three hours discussing our plans for planting Sacred City Church. Now, there was a lot of funny stories that I could tell about that. I don't have time today. I got to get through this. But this was, my wife and I, this was a nerve-wracking and intense conversation, sitting down with three men who kind of hold your future in their hand, right? You're wanting to be a part of this network, and they're the ones that are going to tell you, yes, you can do it, or no, you can't do it. And um, in their words, let me get to the end of the story here. In their words, by the end of the conversation, they said this, Justin, your entrepreneurial scores, your leadership assessment scores are really high, but we're worried about your heart. Now, in the moment, I was like, no, don't worry about that. (laughs) What's that got to do with it? But these men here, really, I'm going to tell you this. For the first time in my life were men, spiritual men, who were more concerned about the state of my soul than they were about what kind of numbers I could bring to the network. There's a lot of networks across the world that I said, I've got 150 people. We've already planted the church. And they're like, what? And they'll just, you just sign the paper and you're part of the network. Acts 29 network's not like that. They didn't let my small amount of external giftedness overshadow the glaring weaknesses of my own soul. And it, that ended up being the most sanctifying conversation that I think I've ever had. I'm so thankful for the network and those men who love me enough to tell me, no, you can't be a part of our network. And we don't think, that's what they said, we don't think you should plant the church. In fact, what we, and they already knew I'd already planted. He said, one of them, Bob Thune said, we think you should close the church down and you should move somewhere and be a church planting resident for a couple years. Experience gospel-centered community and then go back to, the Quad Cities, and plant the church. Man and I, 
There's no way we could do that. We've already got 150 people. We can't just abandon them. We, there's no way. You know, we can't do it. And then by the end of the conversation or by the end of that night, the Holy Spirit had so confirmed it in both of our hearts that we were like, we have to do this. But meanwhile, everybody's back home. They're get, Justin's getting assessed. And I'm getting all my phones blowing up. How's the assessment? How's the assessment? I'm just ghosting everybody. I can't respond right now. The next Wednesday night, we announced our decision to the congregation and we stopped our weekly gathering. And I went back into construction. I had a history in construction. Went back doing construction to support my family. And then a few months later, after Amanda gave birth to Zoe, our second child, we moved to Omaha, Nebraska to do a church planting resident. And this was the first time a man and I had ever been outside the Quad Cities, lived outside of the Quad Cities. We born and raised here. And uh, our time in Omaha was incredibly difficult. <laughs> we lived in a small third floor apartment with no elevator and two kids. We burned through all of our life savings as I was only working part-time at Whole Foods while I completed my education and did this church planting residency. And all the while, we are adjusting to life in a new city with really no friends and no family. It was incredibly hard. But at the same time, a man and I both felt God's nearness in a very unique way. We knew that this is what God had called us to do. We knew that we had made a good decision. It was a hard decision, but it was the right decision. This was the first time in my Christian life that I had elders who I could actually look up to and emulate, that I looked at their life and I could say, that's the type of man I want to be. I want to be a man like that, who leads his family like that, who shepherds his kids like that, who loves his wife like that, who preaches like that, who leads like that. That's the kind of man I want to be. And for the first time, I had elders who actually looked at me and they said, we want to get after some of this stuff in your heart and we want to develop you into the man that God's called you to be. It was also the first time in literally a decade of ministry that I had been out of leadership position in a church and, and without the pressure to preach week in and week out and to lead people, my soul began to flourish. My soul began to thrive. I actually had time to read and study like never before. I developed deep friendships and learned how the gospel can shape a person's entire life. Now, I'm really not being overly dramatic when I say that our time in Omaha changed our life. And the, the, the funny thing is, you might not even know it, but my time in Omaha changed many of your life as well. And I'll get to that in a minute. It was about eight months into my time there where I had a real personal encounter with God, where God really confirmed my identity through the gospel and who I am um, outside of my performance, outside of my working hard, outside of all of my efforts. I had this real heart change through the power of the gospel. It was amazing. And then the, the, the pastor came. It was supposed to be this two-year residency. So I was, look, I was easing into it, just enjoying no, no pressure and just life with my family and I don't have to preach. And then about it, about uh, eight months into the residency, they, the, the, my leaders, the pastors came to me and they said, Justin, this is kind of weird, but, but two things. One, uh, we think you're ready to go back to the Quad Cities. 
and two, we want you to preach in like two months or something like that. And I was like, okay, I'm not sensing that right now. Uh, I'm enjoying my time together. We talked it out. I began to preach for them. But then what, it, what in, ended up happening was, no, I said, you know what? I feel like I need to stay here a little bit longer. And we ended up staying a whole, whole nother year there. But what happened was there's this kind of this shift in focus that I began to focus on what God is, no longer on just what God's done in my heart, but now how can I take what God's done in my heart and the change that I've experienced, how can I take that back to the Quad Cities and influence the Quad Cities? Because the Quad Cities has never seen, or to my experience, doesn't have a church that's like this, that's gospel-centered. And I'll get into that in a little bit. And so the next year, really, I just started going to the coffee shop all day long, eight hours a day, and, and praying and asking God, how can I take this home to the Quad Cities? And over and over and over in my study, God kept bringing me back to the, verse, the verses that we read this morning, Acts chapter 2. And What's going on here in Acts chapter 2 is really, the, it's called, you could say it's the birth of the church. It's the church of Jesus Christ in its infancy. And what we see from this example in our text is the church is not meant to be entertainment. It's not meant to be fancy. It's, it's actually rather simple. And it's got this really simple recipe. But listen, the recipe of the church is rather simple, but it's, its result is eternal. Its result is pretty amazing. What happens because of these simple ingredients, it's pretty amazing. Now, the three ingredients, I'm going to make it really simple. If you've been around here, you, you know these. The three ingredients for the church are gospel, community, and mission. We're going to take a long look at our text this morning, and then I'll get back into our story. Open up your Bibles, Acts chapter 2. Verses 20, verse 22, Peter, you guys remember Peter, right? Peter, the guy who, I don't know, I, he abandoned Jesus. I don't know who you're talking about. I, I don't follow Jesus. I'm not a Christian, right? Just a few weeks later, Peter finds his spine. <laughs> Peter, 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 <laughs> Peter finds his manhood. Peter finds his gospel masculinity, his, his boldness. And now he stands up and the people that he was afraid to acknowledge Christ in front of, now he's going to preach the first gospel-centered sermon. And in, in our vernacular, he's going to peel the paint off the walls, right? This is the, this is the type of sermon we want to preach, and this is the type of result that any preacher prays for. You see it later down the road, 33,000 people get saved. So let's get into it this morning. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Now this is interesting. As he begins his sermon, the first thing he starts with is a historical presentation of the gospel. The first thing Peter starts with are the facts, the facts of the matter. He's talking to eyewitnesses. He's talking to people who were around when Jesus lived and when Jesus was crucified. And the first thing he, he presents to them are the facts of the matter. Let's go into it. Jesus of Nazareth, specific person, lived in a specific town, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. 
as you yourselves know. He's speaking to eyewitnesses. He's saying, you guys all know Jesus did amazing things. Everybody believes this. Everybody saw it with their own eyes. This Jesus, here he gives a theological, some theological underpinning, delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. That means God planned Jesus, the the Trinity had the idea that Jesus was going to come and save us from our sins and die on the cross to do that. He was going to do that from the beginning of time. It was a definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't God's plan B. The crucifixion of Jesus, the Son of God, was God's A plan from the get-go. Here he makes it personal. That Jesus that you guys all saw, that Jesus that God sent you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus, the reason we die is because we're sinners. We have sin in us. Death is a result of sin. Jesus never sinned. And so death had no hold on Jesus. Jesus could not die, but he took on the sin of the world. He took on our sin and died, but death could not hold him, and so he was resurrected to new life. I'm going to, and he, he uses an Old Testament proof here, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. And he's using this, so, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter's saying that, what David was saying there, was speaking of Jesus, that Jesus would die, but he, his body would not see corruption. He would not disintegrate in the grave. It was a prophecy that he was going to be resurrected. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you'll make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29. Brothers and sisters, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. So he's making sure that everybody knows when David was writing that, he wasn't talking about himself. He was prophesying the coming of the Messiah because David was both, he both died and was buried and his tomb is still with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would send, set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke, look, about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Now, here we go. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we all are witnesses. Now, raised up, this means Jesus resurrected. Jesus' physical body came back to life. He was not resuscitated. Resurrection is not resuscitation. He did not come back as some kind of disembodied spirit. He was like a ghost, okay? Jesus' flesh got new life back into it. His flesh was renewed and over 500 people saw him, touched him, ate with him, listened to him, all right? This is what resurrection is. So there's a historical reality that all the people had to deal with in this moment, all right? Here it is. Everybody here knows who Jesus, not right now, but this is what he was basically saying. Everybody here knows who Jesus is. You've all heard about him. He's turned the world upside down. You've heard about his miracles. You've heard about his teaching. You've heard about his crucifixion. Well, guess what? 
Over 500 of us here have seen him resurrected to new life. There's 500 of us. So what's going to explain that fact? Well, we're here to explain that for you. God raised him up to new life because he's the Messiah. This is the historical fact of the gospel. The son of God became a living man, took on the sins of the world, died a substitutionary death on the cross, and then God raised him up to new life. This is Christianity 101. Then look what he says. This God, verse 32, this Jesus, God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. But now he's telling him where Jesus is now. They, the disciples got to see Jesus get exalted, Jesus get glorified, Jesus go up to the, ascends to the Father to be glorified in heaven, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out the Holy Spirit. That's what they're seeing and hearing. The people there were speaking in tongues, speaking in different languages that they didn't understand, but the other people could hear them. He's saying, this Holy Spirit, Jesus purchased it for us. Jesus has poured it out for the believer. The believer can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Look, and he's, again, he uses an Old Testament proof. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David prophesying about what's going to happen with Jesus. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. There's a, a certainty that be, can be had here. That God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Jesus completes all the promises of the Old Testament. This Jesus, uh-oh, whom you crucified. That poses a problem for the, the, the listeners, don't you think? Jesus is the son of God. You killed him. Now, all these people there, they, they, they weren't the Roman centurions. They weren't the Roman soldiers who killed him, but they were partaking in it because they let him be condemned. They didn't jump in front of anybody. They were there with the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him. They didn't understand who Jesus was. Now, look what, look what happens. This is the power of the gospel. Don't you think, when, some, when you say things like that, you expect a visceral reaction. You expect people to start chanting, crucify you, crucify you. Who do you think you are, Peter? But here's the reality. In the first century, this is a fact. They know Jesus. They know he was crucified. And there's 500 of their fellow countrymen who are saying, dude, we saw him yesterday. We saw him. I touched him. Right? This is the, the, cert, this is the certitude that they can have. It's a historical reality. And so the, how, how do we explain that? Well, Jesus didn't really die. Well, we could get into all that. Jesus was just asleep. We, you know, this was a trick. No, 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 no. God raised him up to new life. And so look how they respond. This is the power of the gospel. When they heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart. Why? How did I miss it? Jesus was right in front of me and I missed it. The son of God came and, and I shouted, crucify him, crucify him. I didn't lay my life down for him. I didn't follow him. I didn't believe. They were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Oh man, this is repentance. 
I've made mistakes. I, I've believed wrongly. I've lived wrongly. I haven't treated Jesus how he should be treated. I should have worshiped him and gave him everything. But instead I yelled, crucify him, crucify him. Or I was disinterested. Hey, I got work to do. Who's that guy getting crucified over there? I don't know, but I got work to do. It's not a big deal. We crucify people all the time. But in this moment, when the gospel gets presented to them, the historical fact of the gospel gets presented to them, they're cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit goes inside of them and brings conviction. One of the greatest gifts of a follower of Christ is when the Holy Spirit pricks our conscience. The Holy Spirit says, you've screwed up, buddy. And we respond to that and say, what do we do? What must we do? This is what they say. Peter said to them, here's what you do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the personal this is the personal aspect of the gospel. The first was the historical aspect. This is the personal aspect. We've all sinned against God and we need to be forgiven. And the only way to be forgiven is to acknowledge that sin, to confess that sin, to repent of our sin, and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. For the promise, this promise of forgiveness, this promise of acceptance into the new family of God is for everyone. That's basically what they say. It's for you. It's for your kids, praise God. This is why one of the reasons we baptize kids around here. This is for all who are far off. For every nation of the world, this beautiful promise of the gospel is for them. It's for those that you go to school with. It's for your neighbors. It's for those in Kenya. It's for those in Russia. It's for those in China. The promise of the gospel extends to all. And with many other words, haha. I just like that, with many other words. That's what preachers do. With many other words. In the Greek, that says at least an hour-long sermon. That's what it says. I could be off on that, but. He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. What's he, this is what he's saying there. Listen, save yourself from this crooked generation. I can say that to you right now. Save yourself. It's funny because Christ, what Christ has done, but he's saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. He's saying the world is headed this way. You can't go with the flow. You can't fit right in to society. Save yourself. Repent. Don't go that way. Go this way. Change. This is a message for us on the eve of, or it is the new, it's not the eve of the new year. It is the new year. It's the message for us. Save yourself. Our world is crooked. Our world is bent. Our world is going down a wrong path. We can't walk with them. Verse 41. So those who, look, received his word. Do you know how to do that? This is, so when I'm preaching up here, I'm not a, I'm not a comedian. I'm not up here telling interesting stories. I'm not up here telling interesting facts about the Bible or interesting things about my life. I'm up here presenting the word. And this is meant to be a dynamic relationship. Dynamic. This is why Alex was joking last week that I get, I get, I, I sometimes get a little flustered up here. People are moving around. You want to know why? Because I'm up here relating to you. I'm not just presenting information. I'm 
up, this is a dynamic relationship between me and you and the Holy Spirit and God's word. And I'm presenting something to you, but you have an active role out there. What does it say here? What do they do? Those who what? Received his word. Listen, you can't receive the word when you go to the bathroom. You can't receive the word when you need a refill and coffee. You can't receive his word when you, you want to get an extra mint. You're out there doing something extra. You're not being actively engaged with the preaching of the gospel and the receiving of the gospel. This is meant to be a dynamic relationship between preacher and God himself and listener. That's what we're doing here. It's different from watching YouTube videos and listening to lectures. This is something different. So the people there who received the word of God, look what happened, were baptized. 3,000 of them in one day. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So let me just start with right here. This is the gospel. We see the gospel. We see the historical aspect of the gospel. We see the personal response of the gospel. Like people, they, they get their sins forgiven and they repent and they put their faith in Christ. So church planting, here it is. Church planting is actually planting the seed of the gospel into the soil of people, into the soil of a specific people and place. And then trusting the sovereignty of God and the spirit of God to bring about a thriving church. The gospel does the work. Okay, what we see here in the beginning of the church is not, now listen, this is how many people plant churches today. All right? First, they just, they need money. Then they need a building. Then they need a speaker. Then they need a band. Okay? So, if they raise $200,000 or $300,000 or $500,000, depending on what city they're in, that's how much they need, raise money, get these things together, and then you plant a church, right? That's not how the first church started. The first church started by a man preaching the gospel, planting the gospel, and the gospel taking root in a people and because the gospel, when the gospel takes root in a people, it brings about a thriving church. The church happens as a result of the gospel, not as the result of a man's entrepreneurial gifts, right? It, it, something's wrong when you say, give me $500,000 and I can plant a church. Something's wrong with that, right? It's this corporate mindset. I'm not going to get into it. So here we go. Peter preaches the gospel. The people believe it. And 3,000 get baptized, right? But here's what I want us to see. What, many of us, we could just stop there. We, we think, oh, wow, that's, that's amazing. People got saved. That's what it's all about. It's not what it's all about. Salvation is meant to be a, more than a one-time experience between you and God. Let me say it like this. There's more to salvation than getting saved. Our conversion brings us into a community of people, listen, who live differently than the rest of the world. Remember, turn from this crooked generation, the crooked generation, this is who you lived with before, our culture's going this way. Well, when you get saved, when you believe the gospel, you get dropped into a new community. You literally become a part of what's not known yet, but it's the church 
and this church lives in a countercultural way, and you begin to change as you live as part of this new people. You're, it's in this new community where our lives actually change. So let me say it like this. The inward work that God does through the gospel, right? When we believe and we're converted, he changes our soul. That inward work gets worked out into our everyday life as we practice gospel hospitality with other Christians. Now, what do I mean by that? Gospel hospitality. Look at this. Look at verse 42. And they, who are they? The special Navy SEAL Christians. All the elite Christians, right? No, 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 no. Christians who a day before were not Christians. Maybe, maybe a few hours before. Before Peter preached, these were people not interested in Jesus. They were going this way. They were, going in a, they were in a cr corrupt and crooked generation. But now, because they believe the gospel... Every one of these Christians, they, all of them, this is what they do, devoted themselves to something different. When we're in the culture, we're devoted to making money. We're devoted to success. We're devoted to comfort. We're devoted to all the things that are, we just live like everybody else. But listen, when you become a Christian, you become devoted to something else. This is the rhythms of life in the Christian community for the Christian. Look, what it is it? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, okay? And the fellowship. Fellowship, this is not like an hour after church, right, where you have donuts and coffee. It's fellowship hour. Fellowship means the community, the people. They're living in community with people. They were devoted to that. So they were devoted to they're, you know, the, the, the cultural norms, now they're devoted to this new church community. Keep reading. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. This means eating together. It also means taking the Lord's Supper. And look, I love this. And the prayers, the prayers, the prayers, the prayers. I don't know how often people get, they, they send me emails about why do we put prayers up on screen that everybody reads together? Because we're meant to be shaped by certain prayers, like the Lord's Prayer, right? Like the Psalms. And most of us don't memorize those, and so we need help with that. And so we pray together. We want our prayer life to be shaped together. The early church did the same thing. They had set prayers, the Lord's Prayer and the book of Psalms specifically, that they prayed together. They were devoted to the prayers. Here's the result. First off, pause. Anything spectacular in there? Right? Listen, if you dig down in the Greek, there's nothing about a smoke machine. <laughs> I've checked. This is the church. Teaching, fellowship, food, prayer. But look at the result. When those normal things get infused with, with the gospel and with the spirit, look what happens. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And look what happens here. Look what the community does. And all who believed. See, every Christian, not elite Christians, 
not super discipleship, crazy, on fire, Bible-thumping Christians. Everyone, all who believed, look, were together, had all things in common. And they were even, look at this, selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So as some had extra and some didn't have enough, the ones with extra would sell some things and then give, give it to the ones who were in need. And day by day, well, day by day, not every Sunday, not weekly. See, this, this community thing, this new life, isn't just a Sunday thing, it's a daily thing. They're engaged with other believers daily. They're seeing their church family on a daily basis. They were attending the temple, where they would get teaching, and they were breaking bread, look, in their homes, church in their home. And they were receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, saying, everything that, everything that I have is a gift of God. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And this is something every pastor, and I think every Christian, wants to be true. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Man, that's revival. That's a move of God. So what do we see here? We see the gospel being planted. We see community come out of that gospel. And then this community, look, they're living on mission. They're sharing their faith with others. They're inviting others in. They're living in such a way that other people can see it and other people can get invited into that community where they can find forgiveness and they can find safety and they can find happiness and they can find God. Listen, everyone in our world needs this right here. They need the gospel they need to be forgiven of their sins. They need to meet God and know God and walk with God. Everyone needs gospel community where they can put down the facade and take off the masks and they don't have to prove themselves anymore and act like they're just crushing life and their kids are perfect. They can step into a community where other people are messed up and the grace of God reforms us into a generous, hospitable, kind community. Everyone needs this. And the reality is, no one's going to get it and no one's going to experience unless Christians live like they are missionaries in our culture. They remove themselves from the perverse ways, they remove themselves from the crooked ways and they live as this new formed community, this gospel-centered church, this gospel-centered family who live in new rhythms of generosity and life-on-life -life discipleship devoted to the word of God, devoted to the prayers, devoted to eating together, and they're inviting other people, come get in on this. Come get in on this normal life for the Christian. Now, it's so frustrating that this seems radical. This is the biblical concept of church. This is normal. This is church. It's not a building. Church is not a building. 
It's a gospel-centered people living in community and on mission with one another for the glory of God. It's not spectacular. It's normal. Teaching, fellowship, food, sacraments, prayer, giving, praising God, and leading others to come to know and love our gracious Father. This is what real church looks like. We say it around here. It's a gospel-centered family on the mission of God. Now, this is why. So I'm in Omaha, and I'm reading this, and it seems so simple. And you talk to preachers, and I would talk to pastors, and I said, this is what I'm going to do. Oh, you can't do that. Why, Why not? It doesn't work. Well, why not? Because we live in a consumeristic society, because we're highly individual. People won't let... Other people come in their homes. We're too busy. We're the American family. We're rushed. We're stressed. We're anxious. People won't lead like that. They expect the pastor to do all the work and all the ministering. They don't want to live like missionaries. They don't want to live like servants. They don't want to shepherd other people. Everybody's too busy, got their own problems, and nobody wants to worry about anybody else. It's a convince. When you listen to other pastors, it's a convince. Okay, it would be easier actually just to plant a service. Planting a service would be easier, and I. I'm not the greatest preacher, but I can preach decent, so I can probably gain a crowd again. We could do this. Joel's good with music. Manny could sing. All right, yeah, we could probably do that. I just kept coming back to this text and going, but you know what? I don't want a service. I don't even want, I don't want a big crowd. What I want is normal Christians living like this. What would it look like to have a gospel-centered community? where I could be a shepherd, but also known as a sinner. That it's okay for me, not okay for me to sin, but it's okay for me to be known as a sinner. Well, I want to be a part of that community. I want to see normal people sharing the gospel with other normal people and people getting saved daily. That's what I want to see. So I, I had to do what you hate to do. Well, not really. As a 29-year-old guy, you don't really care. I'm like, you guys are idiots. I'm doing what the Bible says. <laughs> right? That's why basically anything that, not my guys in Omaha, but other pastors, you can't do that in the Quad Cities, never worked, won't work, blah, 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 blah. Let's do it. Oh, what? We shouldn't do it on your, oh, we shouldn't do it New Year's Eve? We're doing it New Year's Eve, right? That's my 29-year-old self, which my 40-year-old self hasn't changed much, but. <laughs> but. <clears throat> so anyways. What we did was, this is what I decided. All right, you know what we're going to do? You can call it hardcore all you want. We're going to start a missional community in Davenport. We're not going to have a Sunday gathering. Because church isn't just a Sunday gathering. Church is people living, on, living in community and on the mission of God. So we started, a sacred, we started a missional community with no Sunday gathering. People thought we were crazy. What are you doing? That missional community multiplied to two. That missional, then they multiplied to three. We had three missional communities within six months. And we said, okay, now that we've got three missional communities, now people are actually getting it. They're living in community and on mission. They are the church. The gospel has taken root here. And these people, now let's start a public gathering. And so we started uh, in July, I think. We started the missional community roughly in June when we moved back to Omaha, or from Omaha in 2011. And then six months later, January 1st, we launched our public gathering, and that was now seven years ago today. We launched that public gathering in this junior theater, which is a miraculous move of God. We got bounced around all different places, and we just found this place by the providence of God. And 69 adults and 20 kids 
were in attendance. Can you imagine this room with 69 adults? I can't imagine it right now. It's basically how many are up in the balcony about probably in the whole thing, right? It was sparse to say the least. Over the last seven years, we have grown now to a church of 15 missional communities. We've baptized 118 people, 11 this past year. We've seen the gospel bring people into God's family and we've seen God stir them up and reorient their lives and send them back out on mission. We've really just been busy doing this, living in community and on mission, making disciples for the glory of God. Now, two years ago today, we had a big event, if you remember. We got to send out our first ever church plant to Sacred City Moline, or to Moline, Illinois. We sent 50 people and $138,000 with Sam Schmidt. And by God's grace, they doubled in their first year. They baptized five people and the Lord has given them a beautiful and historic 100-year-old church building with plenty of space for them to grow into. See, we want to be about making disciples and planting churches and sending people. This is why, listen, I don't know if you know this, at Sacred City, we give 10% of our budget to church planting. We, so 10% of the money you give, we give back to planting churches. This past year, we gave $68,000 to the work of church planting throughout the Midwest and as far as Kenya. With that money, we supported the planting of Harvest City Church in Iowa City. We gave $12,000 to Cornerstone Church, an inner city church plant in Detroit. We've also began to, to support Reconcile Church in Bloomington, Illinois on a monthly basis. This past year, we gave over $17,000 to Fishers of Men to support church planting throughout Kenya. And on top of all that, we managed to save $20,000 to fund our next church plant. For those of you who have given in the past year, thank you for your generosity. You see that in our text they were selling things. They were giving to those in need. Generosity is a key response to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to living in community with others. It's important for us to take time to look back and to remember where we came from and to thank God for his provision to us. God has given us, every one of you in here, God has given you the ability to earn your living. He's provided you your job. He's provided you the skills needed to perform your job. And in worship, we give a generous portion of that living back to him through our tithes and through our offerings. This year, God has met our every need and our generosity has fueled the planting of new churches where the gospel is preached, souls are saved, and people are loved. And this is what we want to see. As we planted the gospel here, we want to see other men sent out and planting the gospel and churches brought up. We want to see more lives saved. This is why I say, if you've experienced heart change at Sacred City, if you've experienced community in a new way, or maybe, and now listen, let me, this is not an idealized, perfect church, okay? We read this, and this is, this is the ideal, but a few years later, we have the Church of Corinth, okay? Things go downhill. They need the gospel. They need faith. They need repentance. 
The church is always reformed and always reforming. Okay, that's, so we're, we're not perfect. We don't do this perfectly. That's why we need the gospel. But if you've had your heart changed at Sacred City, if you've grown in your walk with Jesus, grown in your faith, really, that is a result of my heart getting changed in Omaha, Nebraska. And God's saying, go back to the Quad Cities and take it old school, <laughs> right? Go back to, don't listen to anybody else. Go back to the book of Acts, start fresh, preach the gospel, live in community, live on mission. And you've been changed by it. And here's the reality. We want that, that cycle to continue indefinitely. We want men to be changed by the gospel and then sent out to preach that gospel and other people to get changed and churches to be formed. We want, I want every neighborhood in the Quad City to have a gospel-centered church on it. I want every city in the Midwest to have a gospel-centered church in it, right? Not a church playing church, not a church just doing religious things, not an entertainment, a Sunday morning Christian entertainment, a real church living out the gospel and its implications. So, all right, thank you this year for your generosity. Lastly, no, maybe not lastly, this year... We also launched Sacred City Youth, our gospel-centered youth ministry led by Alex and Brigitte Tate. Alex has a real desire for the discipleship of our teenagers, and he's got a, even a growing desire to be in full-time ministry here at Sacred City serving our teens. Now listen, when I look at the numbers, right now we probably have about 75 kids over in our cottages. It's only a matter of time before those kids are in our youth ministry or they need to be in our youth ministry. Those kids need the gospel contextualized for their teen years. And we want Sacred City Youth to be the place where that can happen on a weekly basis. Gospel, community, mission, even for our teenagers. Now, this has been, it's been a good year. God has been faithful to us. And gracious to us, but there is a danger in our success. When things are nice and comfortable and growing at a moderate pace that we can manage, it becomes really easy, here it is, to disengage. We put things in neutral and coast. One of the greatest dangers we face as a growing church is people begin to think and feel like they don't really matter. And I don't mean that in like a negative sense, like, oh, I don't really matter. I don't mean it like that. I mean it like, it's not a big deal if I stay home this week. There's other people to fill in for me, right? My gifts don't really matter. My giving doesn't really matter. My presence doesn't really matter. We see all the other people around us. Look at we're, we're almost full. So I'm sure that someone else will do it. I'm sure someone else is praying. I'm sure someone else is inviting people. I'm sure someone else asked that person how they're doing. I'm sure someone else is going to give and meet that need. I'm sure someone else is inviting others and discipling others. Someone else is going to lead a missional community. Someone else is going to plant a new missional community. And when that starts to happen, the church begins to stagnate. Everyone thinks that things are going well, but before they know it, see, that's, that's what calm waters are. If, if, the, if, the, if, a, if a water, 
If the water begins to pool and it's not flowing out, it's calm waters. Isn't this nice? So nice. That bathtub, it's so nice. And then after, if you leave that water in that bathtub, what happens? Nasty happens. That's what happens, right? The church begins to do the same thing that stagnant water does in a pond. It gets unhealthy. It slowly becomes a breeding ground for all kinds of sickness. So that said, I want us to rejoice and be grateful that we're not where we used to be. We're not 69 adults and 20 kids and, and barely making ends meet and this little tiny thing that God's prospered us and he's filled this place up and we've sent 50 out and he filled us up again. Let's rejoice in God. Let's rejoice that people got saved this year. Let's rejoice that we're giving money to church planting. Let's rejoice that we've got beautiful buildings over there that our kids can learn about Christ in. But let us not sit back on our haunches and be comfortable. Let us not stagnate. I am asking God, and I'm praying that you would too, that 2019 would be here. A year that we would double through discipleship. Now, you might recognize that statement because I said it last year. We didn't. We grew. I like setting goals high where even when you fail, you still win. Right? Still won. What does it mean to double through discipleship? Here's what it means. That you would get, have the greatest experience of a Christian other than understanding your salvation. And that is seeing someone you love and care about come to know Christ and follow him as a part of the church. I meet too many Christians that have never seen a real conversion. They've never known an unbeliever and seen that un unbeliever cross the line into faith. That's gotta change. I pray 2019 would be the year it changes for you. That you would invest in somebody else. That you would disciple another person. Think about that. If you, every person in here, discipled one person this year, we would double. More people following Jesus. More people living in community. More people experiencing the joy of their salvation. For this to happen, here, here it it's not, in a sense, it's not my job. I'll preach the gospel. I'll try to do it every week, right? I'll lead, I'll shepherd, I'll lead our leaders. I'll do those things. But it's up to every single one of us to do what's in this book right here, Gospel Community Mission. We have to restructure and reshape. We have to leave the cultural norms behind and live in a new way in community and on mission. Our kids won't get to do everything that other kids do. It's okay. We're discipling them. Our, we won't get to spend all of our money on our own desires. We've got to funnel some of that to the church. We've got to funnel some of that to the people of God to further gospel ministry. I'm praying that all of us would ask God to show us who has he put in our path that we should be discipling? And how can we pursue a relationship with them and love them and invest them and invite them into our community? But for some of us, it simply means you need to get into the community. You need to join a missional community. You need to devote yourself to this new way of life.
Some of you, you need to join the church. In the next couple months, we're going to have church membership. You need to step into that. Pursue that with us. As I close, as I shared a few weeks ago, the elders believe that it's time for us to recruit and train our next church planter. And we do that. And it's also, you know, I mentioned, I might as well say it now. Alex Tate is also prayerfully considering becoming a pastoral resident to be trained for full-time ministry here at Sacred City. If you didn't know, Alex Tate has been working between 60 and 80 hours a week and leading our missional community or leading our youth ministry. How does he do that? The gospel's changed his heart. That's how he, and it's a joy for him to do it. And he'll do it for as long as we ask him to do it or as long as God allows him to do it. But he feels called to step out of his full-time job and, into full, and get trained for full-time ministry. It's an evidence of God doing an awesome work. But we want to bring, so basically we want to bring in two men to be able to train them and equip them for gospel ministry in the Quad Cities. And in order for us to do that, here it is. Here's the request. We're going to have to bring in an extra $7,000 a month to be able to do that. That's a lot of money. But if we all chip in, we can do it. And we can tr train a couple more men for good gospel ministry here in the Quad Cities. And a year from now, we can rejoice and say, look what God has done, right? Now, what is, again, this isn't somebody else's responsibility. We have to do this together. So would you prayerfully consider increasing your monthly giving by $100, by $250, by $500? Whatever it is, as we, it's, it, all of that, whatever you're giving is, it goes a long way when we can do it together. Now, why would we do this? This is just something I was praying about this morning. As we come to the Lord's table, when Jesus broke this, he, on the night that he's betrayed, he, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body. When Jesus was doing that, he knew his body was literally going to be broken Scripture tells us, but Jesus went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. A part of that joy was the knowledge that he was going to get a renewed body. You can destroy this body because God's going to renew it. I'm getting a resurrected body. How do you get the power to give away your finances? Because you know that you're getting something better in the resurrection. That it's a physical thing that you get to give away. And, you, and when you're giving it away, Scripture tells us you're making an investment in your eternity where moth and rust cannot get, get to. You make an investment in yourself, you burn up that income, right? When you give to God, you make an investment in eternity. And when we come to the Lord's table, we have to remind ourselves that. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in our money. Our hope is not in our free time. Our hope is not in our children being well-adjusted American kids. Our hope is in the future resurrection that we're all going to have because Christ was resurrected in a physical body. We have to tap into that. And when you give financially, if you're giving appropriately, which is generous, which is 10% or more of your income, you feel that. This is a real loss for me. This hurts when I do it. And I have to remember, my hope is in heaven, right? My hope isn't in my money. 
It's in heaven. When you come to the Lord's table this morning, I want you to ask the Spirit to give you that sense. Just as Christ said, my body broken for you. And he was giving up his body, his physical body, but he was receiving a new body. Think about that. It's the same way we lay down our life and Christ gives us a new one. Why? For the joy that's set before us. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the work of the gospel. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you for how you've changed our hearts. I believe you're changing hearts even now. And God, this is a, a bold vision. This is a challenging vision. It's going to require everyone here believing the gospel, laying down their life, living in community on mission, and being generous. And I pray that you would do it. Pray that your spirit would stir hearts even now. That we're all a part of the church. As we come and take the bread and the wine, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, Father, let us remember anew how you laid your life down for us. Let us also commit to lay it down our lives for our brothers and for those who don't know you yet. For your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen.